0: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Jeff. We have an exciting launch that's happening on Thursday, June 11th. Head over to LinkedIn and look up Gain, Grow, Retain. Go ahead and follow the page and we'll have more announcements soon.
1: Nobody, it was very clear, nobody had it dialed in on like how to structure and operationalize success plans. Like everyone's like basically has a model that works if you have like three accounts and you're babysitting this document, but because they're not like living, breathing, plans that are being co-managed by both the customer and the you know the whomever is CSM it's like I don't know it's stale it's never current I don't even know if it's the right one like I don't know I would actually Let's... challenge that most people aren't doing it well like I wouldn't even call it
0: welcome to the game grow retain podcast
1: people are saying that they're building out these success plans but they're not really plans right it's kind of like a checklist of like how they're defining success internally but unless your customer is confirmed, like their digital transformation plans with you and how they are measuring and defining success, how can you build a plan off of that? And what I heard a lot of is that people can't get their customers to articulate that, but that they also can't come to the conversation with a recommendation on what that should look like. So if you've got both parties who can't clearly articulate success, how can you have a success plan is my question.
2: Yeah, even if they can articulate it, you should at least to your point, you should come to the table with a perspective for them to respond to. I mean, we yeah. even do that internally, like with our team. It's like, hey, I have this idea. I'm going to write it down on a piece of paper and I'm going to share it with you, Jeff. And then you're going to, well, then we're going to riff back and forth on it and make it make sense for both of us, right? And put both of our fingerprints on it. I look at the successful in the same way.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was, that was my big observation is that they are not mutually aligned. Like both parties aren't mutually aligned to the, the structure of the plan. And then also committing the resources to execute against that. Right? Because I feel like it's almost like a set it and forget it. They put it in place and then they say, this is our plan. But then is somebody actually managing and executing on that on a regular basis to ensure you're hitting milestones that you're advancing to that plan on a regular basis? And it should, yep. the should be on the customer, right? Because they're the ones that should be working to transforming their business. And I feel like a lot of the ownership ends up falling on the CSM because they have something tied to having to say that their customer was successful. But the reality of it is the customer needs to own that.
2: I think the first metric of success is, and it's not even really a success metric. It's really more of a prioritization technique. Who's engaged in this process with me? If I'm a CSM and I have a hundred accounts, let's say if I have a 20 accounts, yep. who's actually willing to do this with me? And if you're not willing to have a successful plan conversation, that tells you something right there. That's Correct. a signal.
1: So my other you guys assess- 10 accounts
2: that, yeah, go ahead.
1: No, no. I was just going to say, like, do you guys work with customers where maybe even during the process, you're helping them assess fit? early on because when we go through like customer fit and that criteria, one of them is is like from a resource standpoint, like do you have the right resources, do you have the right technology, right? Do you have all of the right things in order to actually be effective in moving forward with this? Right. And I feel like people don't actually talk about that up front. And then the, there's a lack of ownership, right? Overall ownership. There's somebody who's accountable for it, but there's nobody who's owning it in the day to day. And I think that's where I think a lot yeah. of things kind of fall off the rails is that you you lack that ownership and accountability on a regular basis. And then nobody's moving it forward.
0: There's a we just got done recording a podcast earlier this week with a guy named Justin Welsh. Um, got, he's you know big in, in the sales scene, but a, kind of the uh, same thing we're talking about here. You know B2B SaaS kind of going towards 50 million in revenue. And uh, one of the interesting pieces I picked up from him, which I think you're articulating a lot of too, is around this whole concept of like actually having a perspective on the ideal client profile. And, you know, getting products, like how did you build the product actually to be used Uh, customer success, who are our most successful customers? What are the processes? What are the people Uh, sales? What are you hearing marketing? And I think, um, you know, one of the things that I'm picking up uh, from what you're saying right now, too, is the fact that, like, sometimes like we walk into a conversation and the customer that has been sold like the salesperson hasn't even asked them if they're ready to take on our software, if they have the right processes, if they have the right people. And then if I'm the CSM, not even asking those things, like to me, that's just right off the bat, like where you end up finding clients that are almost immediately read within like the first three months. It's like no one talked to them about all of these things that should really help them align to be successful. Um, But I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the first things to think about is um, what are the things that are surrounding our software that are going to make this successful for the business Um, And then the second thing, right, is like, what is the intended outcome that you're actually trying to achieve with our, what is the business result? Not what, not what, what do we want to achieve? We want you to be in our software every day, but what is the actual business result? Yeah. Like what is the business result that's going to happen that is going to take, have our software be relatable to your board meeting, to your quarterly objective, to your yearly objective? Like, what does that actually look like? Um, And I think, you know, from, I'm curious, you know, your standpoint too, Christy, but I think part of the time that we go into organizations, I think. The challenge that we see is that um, maybe those conversations aren't set up right, but I think we also, like, there's not a template, there's not a way to even frame up those conversations so that your CSM can be successful having them. I think people just assume that, like, hey, we have this document, and then the CSM should be able to talk to it, but then it's like, did you really coach them or train them up on, like, how to have a conversation like that with their executive sponsor or their champion about, like you said, digital transformation type plans?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, then then we just dip our toe into the whole like training and enablement, right? Like that's, yep. I'm so big on that. We, um, at intelligence we're using WorkRamp. Um, and we use it very heavily for, like, all of our training and internal, like, certification processes and everything. So we kind of house everything in there. And I will tell you, every since I've gotten here, every single process that I've put in place, everything that we've outlined, everything that I've rebuilt has been entered into there in a very, like, structured way where we've got now a formulated process that everyone goes through. They get certified on every single process. We go through coaching. They can record videos of themselves doing things, like, that's a big thing, right? So that's almost its entire, its own talk track in itself is like training enablement. But you're right. Like we give people a high level framework and we anticipate that everyone can go and have the same conversation someone like we could have, right? Like, and that's just not the case. I can't expect my CSM, who's been a CSM for a year, to go and be able to tell an executive how they should be thinking about their business transformation or how they identify business outcomes versus product outcomes and how those two things are very different and how we need to align the two together to talk about our joint success through the partnership. Um, That's not an easy conversation to have. And if you've never had it before, we have to just assume it's not happening and it's not happening well.
2: We have a good example of this. So um, one of our clients, it's just a coaching client for us. We do some high level advisory with them and we're rolling out the joint success plan with them. And the, Basically, we put them through the process of teaching them what that is, and then they create some, and then we bring them back together and we review them together. Real basic, right? But it's 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 a basic enablement process we're we're putting in place there. But this interesting case came up this week when we were reviewing one of their plans, and that there's a there's a change management issue in the field for something that they have to get done. And if they don't get that change management issue taken care of for their customer with their customer, adoption of their software will not happen, and they will their that that account will cancel. Right. So that right there is an example of nothing to do with the technology, right? It really is a business, a pure business problem. So part of the success plan is we said, okay, are there any other customers who look, who have that same change management problem in your portfolio? Mm -hmm. And there were, there were a couple. And so we picked the one that was best and we said, all right, we're going to take this executive sponsor from over here. And we're going to go introduce them to this customer over here. And that became part of the success plan has nothing to do with software, has nothing to do with product, but everything to do with both business outcomes and also our outcomes as a result.
1: Yeah, and I think like the other thing with success plans, I think that people think about it as a template too much, right? Like instead of a framework, right? Like people just think it's like a plug and play model where it's like, we've got this one size fits all, here's our success plan and here's how it's going to work. and every customer gets on board with the same journey and that's just not the reality. Right. And so it's, we're going to even get into that point of having something structured, but then also how do you riff on that with a customer, right? Like how do you tailor it so that they can lean in with the way that their organization is thinking about this and then influence that so you guys can work on it together and everyone feels really bought in and good.
2: Yeah. I I think the more SMB you are, like the other question is how do you scale this. Right. And I think when, when you're in, you know, working with SMB SaaS customers, you're, you're almost, you, you do have templatized versions of that that you start with, right? And then you can still validate, but it really, to your point, it's just driving the right conversation at that level. It might not be a formal document that you exchange or process, but so you talked about operationalizing this earlier, get yeah. real tactical with us and tell us how you do that. Cause I know yeah. you use Gainsight, but like how do, you, how do you track that it's actually happening? What kind of metrics do you look at?
1: Yep. So the way that we've designed it is such that because our product is very modular, um, every single product that we have, um, take our inspection one, for example, right? So it's all focused on people that have to do pre and post inspections on their vehicles before a driver gets in. When they're done, they're returning the truck. Um, that's, That's a product, and there's a lot of nuances to it, and it's actually required by law that they complete these for vehicles of certain sizes, right? So we've got a product that just focuses on that. As a result, we've got a corresponding success plan that maps back to that product. Because what we understand is that a customer who purchases this product is trying to achieve these three things, right? So we've already identified that, like, you're you're trying to focus on reducing the time, right? Validating that these inspections are actually happening, um, the cost of the paper manual process of doing that, right? So that like, we've got a c- couple things that say, like, here's what success outcomes look like for folks who are using our product to solve this problem. We define what those metrics are, um, and so like, we already have, like, you know, we should look at the Percentage of time that you're allocating to this right now, Uh, vehicle maintenance that correlates back to vehicles not being properly inspected, tickets that you got last year from vehicles that were stopped with broken tail lights and things like that, like the real cost where we can actually tie it back to ROI. Um, And then we've got a series of tasks or activities built into these playbooks that says, you know, here's the first couple things that we need to do in sequential order in order to set a customer up successfully to use this product in a way that's going to correlate back to those goals. Right. So it's structured based on the product um, and it's a template. And then they can deploy it and then customize it, right? Like, so that's the point. It gives you maybe like six or seven steps of like what you would successfully do to to deploy this product into an organization to drive value from it. And then from there, right, like you're actually, you're plugging in the customer specific metrics back to those KPIs. Um, You're tailoring their outcomes to talk about exactly what they want to see. It could be some of the ones that we've predefined, but maybe there's something else unique about it. Um, And then the, the CSMs have a playbook that they can follow with the customer, but then also go and modify it. Now we are using Gainsight for it, right? So in Gainsight with the success plans, there's a couple of things. One, you have the ability to add more tasks and activities very easily. So I can go and I can modify that plan. I can adjust it. I can share it. Um, So that's something else that makes it extremely powerful is being able to kind of co-manage and own that with your customer, which is I think the most important part is that like you're both bought into it. You're both working on this together. and then being able to just kind of manage that what i talked about earlier right is if you've got a powerpoint presentation that's not a living breathing thing or an if, and if it is you're spending a lot more time than you should managing it um and it's outdated very quickly so yep. in order for you to have like a real-time view of what's happening having in a system like this or even even excel would be a more appropriate way to manage it than that powerpoint or word doc um, would allow everyone to be on the same page with all the tasks and activities so that's the way that we've structured plans so if we've got a customer who bought five of our products which is not uncommon we can deploy five success plans. And now the CSM might say, great, you know what, we're gonna start with product one and two with these customers. So the timeline will be based on Q1, products three and four and five, we're gonna put those in Q4, and we're gonna build out the timeline that we feel we can both agree and work towards with each of these products. We've got your KPIs, we had some examples in those success plans. We even give examples of customers that they can go look at and reference case studies on our website to go see how they've used this product. Nice. So we make it so so well-structured and then honestly, it becomes plug and play, but it is specific to the customer because they bought this product and they're trying to change something in their organization. So that's how we have found very specifically that like, success plans work at a, in a way that is templatized, but also ties back to KPIs, key objectives, and both business and product outcomes.
0: Love it. One of the, uh, pieces, and this is maybe is a good transition point, um, to kind of another topic, but I think that still applies to this. So, um, one thing that uh, the, all those points that you just mentioned, right. Potentially having kind of five different success plans and tying that into specific products. Um, one of the things that I think we've been talking to in our audience a little bit recently, we've seen a lot in the community uh, on LinkedIn is customer marketing and how, um, you know, is there somebody from the marketing team? Do we have, you know, an actual person who is focused on customer marketing? Is it CS, you know, the CS team that's handling it through uh, their own tool and like having a multitude of these questions. Um, And we were having a conversation earlier uh, with somebody from the community that we've uh, been talking to. And one of the things that I just think is really interesting as you start thinking about it is uh, the whole concept of account-based marketing came up because of the demand and demand gen, uh, you know, let's go find our accounts. We need to find the people at those accounts and we need to give them the right message at the right time. And predominantly it's always been talked about in the demand generation side of the marketing equation. But if you like flip the coin and reverse that and say, Hey, how, why aren't we thinking about our customers that way? And like the information you just gave is like so perfect of an example. It's like, look how much information we have about one customer. They have five different products. We probably already have like an executive sponsor, champions, power users who could all be getting different messages if we had the right system set up to deliver these messages um, at the right times and all these things. But I just think it's it's fascinating um, and interesting when people start to look at their customer base and start to think about all of those touch points and the, um, and the points of segmentation, essentially. Like they have this type of product. They're this type of um, champion for us. You know, they might have this business outcome or objective or KPI and like what you could have, like the power that they have in their hands to really uh, tailor the messaging. Um, and the last point I'll make on this and curious, you know, your guys thoughts on this too, but it's like uh, there has been such a, in the recent, you know, five years, we'll say with a lot of these um, industries and thinking about these different verticals of a business, there's always been this push to like get as um, efficient as possible let's make everything efficient. Let's just start mass communicating email. Let's start mass communicating. Let's send out 50,000 emails and we have a 30% open rate. And that is awesome. And now I think what we're seeing is like the complete opposite, which is like, oh, we need to take it back to being personalized because people stop opening emails and, you know, nothing's really that relevant. And so I just think there's this uh, time right now, especially for customer success, to really look at their customer base and say, um, how can I make a a more effective communication strategy with all of the points of data that I have about my customers. So I'm curious uh, Christy from your standpoint if you've tried to use something similar, you know I know you have Gainsight but do you uh, do you find yourself, you know, thinking of campaigns like that or is that something down the road for you? Uh, is that you know all on marketing? I'm just curious your your kind of take on customer yeah. marketing how that falls in.
1: So I, it's so funny that you bring that up. So I just made a post about that yesterday on LinkedIn about customer marketing. So we one of the things I advocated for when I joined the organization was I want someone to head customer marketing. Um, but that person needs to report into customer success. I don't want that to be a marketing function. I want that to be someone who resides in the CS org because they're going to be more intimate with the customers. They're going to be driven by our OKR strategy and, and our processes and our, you know, our, our targets and goals. Um, so I did get that approved, um, unfortunately COVID and, um, my hiring freeze. So what we did do though, is because I had a CS ops person as well. We combined the two roles. And so there was a woman who stepped up from our traditional marketing team and stepped into that role we combine the two and so she is now taking that on so I, I do believe in that role i do think there is somebody who needs to focus exclusively on customer marketing if people don't have that focus they're, they're miss they're missing the boat i think that, that is so critical and as organizations become more sophisticated it's something it's just like cs ops like it's one of those core functions right now you have to be thinking about as part of your headcount and your plan um with regards to our organization what we're doing i mean right now i think I've been heads down into trying to like build everything out for our team. So we haven't gotten to a place where I can be super strategic with our campaigns and how we're, we're managing our customer base. Um, but in previous organizations, that was something that was very top of mind. So yes, we did take, um, you know, it, Two other organizations where I was, we took an ABM approach with supporting our customer base and it was really trying to figure out like who are the accounts that we really wanna nurture? What did that nurture strategy look like? What was the timing and sequencing of it? Who is our audience of that program? Um, And so we did really get pragmatic about how we did that and partnering with the CSMs individually to nurture those accounts and we had goals and objectives tied to it. Um, It's a lot of work, I will say that. And so if you don't have dedicated resources and if you can't really commit to a strategy and really executing it flawlessly, um, I can also see it going pretty bad.
0: Jay, from your perspective, um, you know, no customer marketing function in an organization. Um, like what are some of the things that you're thinking about if you're a customer success leader, you know, are you, um, trying to institute those, you know, are you trying to go to the marketing leader and get them to institute those in their marketing tool? Like if you have, if you didn't have customer, uh, marketing in your, in your domain and you didn't have gain like I'm thinking of like, what are some of the steps that you might take as a leader to try and help kind of get that done? Well, I,
2: you know, I think it's funny. We, we had somebody else on the podcast last week or no, uh, when was it? I think it was last week. And what she was saying is, yeah, you know, traditionally we've had to beg, borrow, and steal from marketing. There's things that, that we couldn't get done for a year because marketing was too busy doing demand gen and, you know, brand building, that kind of thing, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think so. So first of all, I think this crisis has is, is um, gotten everybody thinking about how important the customer base is as an asset to the organization, which is, you know, a no brainer to to those of us who have been around customer success for a while um, and SaaS, frankly. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a non negotiable thing. I I don't necessarily care whether it lives in marketing or in customer success. I've seen it both places, but it's the idea that there's dedicated capacity aligned to the effort because there's this like baseline of communication that needs to be going out to the customers. And there's always thinking about how to segment and who to target. And it's not just the customer, it's the individual personas within the customer that we're trying to tailor um, messaging to and make sure that, that they're, you know, getting the right kind of content, the right kind of ways. Um, We, I mean, we're a huge believers in the, in content as a brand building tool, which is why we do this podcast and um, our blog and, LinkedIn and all that kind of stuff. And it, the same exact principles apply to almost every single business, right? Especially SaaS companies who are trying to maybe change the way people think and work and do their, do their business. So, um, so it, that doesn't stop once somebody has bought your product that the, that drumbeat has to continue and, and probably get more detailed over time. So, yeah, I think customer marketing is a cool topic.
0: Yeah. There's that whole concept too around, um, helping your employees like build their personal brand so that it ultimately builds up your brand too. Like, I think that is something that just is missed right now. And I think uh, customer marketing can play a role in that, right? Like if I'm, if I'm already segmenting our customer base and I'm putting out content to our customers that is relevant, like I should be feeding that to, you know, Christy and her team that basically says like, Hey, here, you go put this on LinkedIn. Like this is going to be valuable for the community to know Uh, because if, and I think this goes back to, you know, Christy's point from earlier too, like if we're putting out, uh, content that is relevant for our success plans and thinking about how, how do we help our customers be successful, not only be successful with our product, then like the industry should benefit from the content we're generating, you know, overall oh, yeah. anyways. Like it should just be, hey, here's how we should be thinking about the industry and the process and the people that are involved. Those, uh, those I think ob- that's a huge mess.
2: Those objectives in the, in the success plan are the problems that the, your industry has. Correct. And, and, the and that customer that you're talking those. to is
1: not the only one with that problem.
2: <laughs> totally. Totally. Sure. If it is, then you... You get well, a then, problem. you know the other
1: thing is like for honestly, for most customers, if they don't know it's a problem, then you tell them it's a problem. They start digging around, they realize it's a problem. So, if anything, it's opening doors for additional conversations we weren't having it anyway. So,
2: so this person wrote me on LinkedIn and said, "I've taken a bit of a more senior role in in customer success through the last year, and I'm trying to put together a report on what healthy usage looks like." Um, so, uh, I won't even go into what they do, but um, you know, what insights do we have around that and I'll just sort of throw out some ideas. It's right. It's hard in a vacuum to answer that question. There's no formula for that. There's no one size fits all. So what I started to think about was what questions should we be asking to help him think through this? Um, And first, the first point though I want to make is that usage does not equal health. Um, Correct. Right. I mean, if you have, I worked for a company and it was an HR tech platform and you had to use the software once it was installed. And so if, if you were using the software or or you weren't happy or you were happy, you couldn't tell the difference in the usage, right? I think there's a lot of platforms like that. So, um, so what questions should we ask this person to, to help them think through this problem relative to their business? What would you start with Christy?
1: Oh my goodness. Well, with, with me, I'm trying to draw correlations between that usage activity and direct correlation with customers and the behaviors that you want to see. Right? So like, trying to make that draw that correlation right like if a customer is using a part of the product in a certain way right does that person is there a higher likelihood of that person driving more value as a result right like if a person is logging in that's great but if they're clicking around on my home screen on the dashboard they're probably not getting much from it, but a customer who's driving down, they're doing exports, they're like using the data, and it's clear that they are. Um, then that's something that I would look at as behavior that directly correlates to that. But the reality of it is, when even when I'm thinking about those metrics as it pertains to my health score, or even customer health overall, you know, I'm it, it, you're testing it, right? Like so, for me, it's like I right. have something in place right now, but like I don't know if it's right or wrong yet. It's not tried and true, and until we're able to formulate a hypothesis and say this data actually has direct correlation to this outcome that we want to see and we can prove that, it's kind of hard, right? And so I try to be very clear with anyone I'm talking to as well as my internal stakeholders is that we're testing this, right? Like we're, we are, for our organization, we're just starting to get access to this data and these insights at a deeper level than we had before. I'm drawing some hypotheses and conclusions without really knowing right now, but yep. we're going to iterate on that. And so yeah. I would say is like, what, what behaviors and activities can you see as you would believe would correlate to value from your solution, and are your customers doing those things?
2: That's a great start. And maybe even you take that mindset and back up a second and say, okay, your last 10 customers that churned, what do they have in common? Like, what were the thing, Like, part of this is just churn analysis and. Sure, but success. maybe
1: look at it outside of COVID. Like, let's go uh, back. Yeah, <laughs>
2: totally. Yeah. But <laughs> success analysis too. Like, choose, choose your 10 most successful customers. What are the things that they do? Some of them are going to be in the product. Some of them are not going to be in the product, but what are the things that they have in common? And then how do we replicate that? Right. Or yeah. One
0: One of the things that I kept thinking about too is, is even just starting to with a like simple segmentation and then doing like three to five customers in each segment of the business and going to look at like usage that they're having in each of those, each of those segments. And then, you know, the same thing that you were mentioning, can I find maybe hopefully we don't have churn in every segment, but if we had churn in each segment, like, can I go look at churn in each segment as well? And then, you know, to Christy's point, then let's, let's come up with those hypotheses. And what I would hope to see too, is that like, you know, maybe the smallest segment is using the platform in, in having kind of key value actions that are different than our enterprise segment. Um, And like, if we can start to draw those early on too, like, I think that's even a a bigger benefit. Um, But I think that's the, to me, I always try and like figure out like, how can I even just start with some of the even if I don't have a full blown segmentation maybe I have to redo it, but just, you know, to Christy's point, like we have to start somewhere. We have to come up with a hypothesis, even if you're saying like, Hey, I'm just going to do it by ARR right now. Fine. But let's, you know, let's get segments of customers and understand how they're using the platform. Um, and then I think, you know, back to um, an earlier point too, like, I wonder if you could also try and tie back some of the key value actions that they're having to the outcomes they're trying to achieve in each of those segments. And then even break that down a little bit. Um, sometimes it might be a little analysis paralysis, but I think, um, again, like you have the data available. And I think um, for so long, I used to work in the marketing world on on the demand gen side and we had like no data available ever. And so like now that I'm on, you know, like now I think on this side of the equation I'm like, man, if I have all this data, there's so many kind of little micro segments that you can go look at. But uh, I think it's a really interesting question to ask the, and one, maybe one question to dig deeper too. Like how do you think about key value actions like in the software itself as well? Like um, you know, and Jay, from your experience, do you go ask the product team like what a key value action is? Do you just look at the data, you know, of like they're performing X, Y, and Z? Like how do you I don't know, how do you actually discern like this is a, a, a valuable action that we should deem so?
2: Well, a lot of times if you if you have a good pricing model for your software, it's based on the most valuable types of interactions that you could have. So we that's actually the first reason we need to know the answer to that question. Um, you know, I'll pick on product a little bit because I used to be a product manager. They don't always know the answer to that question. Sometimes they're, you know, a little too deep in the weeds and they're not thinking about the big picture. That's not all product teams. Many product teams are not that way, but um, you know, so that is a risk there. I think it's listening to customers. I think it's talking to and listening to customers and matching up what you're hearing from them qualitatively with what you're seeing in the data. And so, you know, the other thing I want to work into this discussion is like, when does the data become deceiving as to what's really happening in our clients? Or do we use data to comfort ourselves that we have a metric, even though it's the wrong metric sometimes?
1: Well, I mean, how many times have we seen a customer who's got strong adoption using everything the way that's intended and then they leave, right? Like I actually, totally. like, I was just, I don't remember if it was in office hours or there was another conversation I was having, but a customer had spent an entire year, onboarding onto a new software, but they couldn't deprecate the previous incumbent because they needed it to operationalize their business. So adoption and usage looks so strong, but the reality of it was that they were using another platform the entire year and took me a year to get it deployed. And they spent the year paying for two technologies using both very heavily. So clearly usage and adoption was not indicative of their health. Right. Somebody was clearly not talking to that customer.
0: Yeah. We had that, um, that happened with one of our clients. They, the CEO had to walk into the boardroom and and tell them that the, one of their largest customers had churned and that they had been implementing a new platform for an entire year. So that's right. I think I read it on your LinkedIn. (laughs) Yeah. And so, uh, but yeah, so it's the, but that is the exact scenario. Cause like, just like you said, like they had all these strong usage and and every, you know, and um, that's the, one of the things that I think they identified. and, And when we went in there identified pretty quickly is that Uh, They weren't really looking at the quality of the relationships either. They were just at surface level saying, oh, we're almost just like you said earlier with the success plan, right? Oh, we had our quarterly business review and everything seemed great and results are good and they were happy and we went on and no one was sitting there asking like the hard questions and asking like, where's the business going and actually, you know, trying to generate like the good good discussion and like the kind of the good butting of heads, not the bad butting of heads, but um, like there was no one in the room doing that. Like it was just kind of a yes party and like, let's move on. And I think they just looked at it as like a check the box.
1: That's the problem Um, is that that motion of checking the box and saying like, yep, I did that thing. That's the problem. And that is how most CSMs are operating, right? Think about it. How many people have playbooks that are structured and maybe their tools or their leader gave them a framework of here's how I'd like you to engage in these scenarios. For most people who have so much work and they're so busy and they've got all these things going on, they just need to get the activities done to prove that they're doing their job. Right. Like, so it's, it's tough. It's a tough balance to strike and then to know if what folks are doing are actually the right things to get the reality of what the scenario is.
0: Yeah. Um, Jay, back to the second part, uh, I think of the original question too, right. Usage doesn't necessarily align up to, um, uh, account health. So, uh, I think we've talked a little bit just right now, you know, there's relationships, there's outcomes and, you know, business objectives and, uh, kind of the, Success plan that matters, there's account health. Um, I don't know, what are two to three others maybe that you think kind of fall into that, like account health that need to be kind of outside just product to usage, both you and Chrissy. Or Christy and Jay. I'll throw one out and then sure. Christy can
2: throw one out. I'd say use case fit and in industry. A lot of times, you know, that's a it's a good barometer of whether the, the customer is gonna be with you for the long term. You know, if you sell the wrong customer and, and you're just striving to make it work the whole time, it usually ends up at some point in failure.
1: Customer fit is huge. Uh, I'll throw out voice of customer. Um, right. Mm-hmm. So like we have a billion touch points or ways that we could be hearing or listening to our customers and their sentiment throughout the entire journey, whether that be their frustration with an invoice that went out and something that they're back and forth with billing and finance. And we don't have, you know, we're not privy to that conversation because it's happening in a vacuum or, you know, a, a t- support ticket has, you know, 24 ping pongs back and forth and they weren't able to resolve the issue, but had they had just picked up the phone and called the customer it could have been resolved in five minutes, right? All those things and the sentiment coming out of every single one of those engagements is obviously it's like the death by a thousand paper cuts right like g- it gets to a point where that is all impacting the customer's experience and their health as a result so I would say voice of the customer but when I think about it's like literally your voice of the customer throughout the entire journey and capturing it every moment where they're engaged with your brand
2: and if you're not hearing the voice of the customer that is also a signal our friend our, <laughs> our our friend Steve that's Bernstein, a pretty strong one yes <laughs> he's he's so big on this but um do you know Steve Bernstein at, at Waypoint Group? He has a, okay. he, his company is a, is an NPS platform. They've, they've done B2B. He was with Satrix back in the day. Okay. Um, but they basically, you know, his, his point is they've taken NPS, which was really conceived and developed around consumer B2C yep. applications, right? Um, and he's really done a lot of work to to mold it into a B2B kind of thing. And so he really, really heavily weights the non-responders because that's telling you something. Well, I think they're, it's they're the way thing more thing likely we to we extrapolate
1: them and we neutralize that. And we only look at the promoters and the detractors. But like the the people that don't respond, that's the largest percentage, right? You get a 20, yep. 25, 30% response rate on an NPS. What about the 70%? The folks that didn't care enough to say anything.
2: Yep. Kills yep. me. Kills okay. Me. All right. All right. Next category is um, relationship depth do you have the right relationships at the right levels and are they actually real relationships? Do you, can you approach the, the executive sponsor at any time? Will they take your call? Will they respond to your emails? That type of thing. They're ultimately responsible for the spend of your product on your product. So relationship health, I would add to that. Yeah, that's a good one. For, for larger clients. I mean, you can't track that at a detail level for everybody. Although we've seen some interesting oh. lately. Yeah,
1: I, I would challenge you. that a little bit like so I know that we had a thread back and forth and one of the things that you know we think about with relation to individual contact scoring is looking at their behaviors and engagements right like so Basically, I've created a matrix where there's like a list of different activities, like does the customer fill out the NPS? Forget what their score is, right? Did they fill out the NPS? Have they attended your webinars or any of your content? Have, they, have you met in person? Um, are they actively engaging in your regular recurring conversations? Um, have they been part of an executive business review? Have they served as a reference, a testimonial? Right? Like I have a, basically a matrix of things that would say customers that do this would have a score, right? And each of those different things that we're looking at has a number and a weighting. And each of those individual contacts in any account then can be scored on that. And as long as you've got all those touch points being automated or documented somewhere, it's kind of easy to get a score number. And then you can use it as a weighting to understand the value of the relationship you have with any individual contact in an account. It's not a science and it's not full, yeah,
0: of but, root, but, but, but at least
1: it's, it's directionally good. at scale, it would give you more visibility than you'd have otherwise.
0: Yeah. Especially what I I think, especially as you scale, I mean, again, right. Like I think a lot of these things, when you start bubbling them up into the enterprise segment, it's a lot easier for me as the CSM or the account manager, whoever for me to assess the relationship, because I'm probably only have 20 accounts. I probably can go way in depth. I, you know, I know the executive sponsors, kids names. I probably know, you know, personal life and, you know, tidbits. And, um, but that's the, I I like the way you talked about that though, because um, that also is using the technology to help you, in those situations, right? Like we've got webinars, like it's pretty easy for us to see, have you been an attendee over the last yeah. 12 months, do a webinar? Have you, uh, like one of the other things that I think has been interesting recently too, that we've talked to a couple clients about is actually changing up how you're delivering messages. So instead of just sending emails, like, Hey, I sent them a video message. Did they watch my video? Like it was a five minute thing about, you know, how we're adapting during COVID or how we, you know, updated our product in this way so they could use it in this use case. Um, and it was personal. And so I think, you know, using all those um, is really big. The other, so to go back to the executive or to the um, enterprise side of the equation, one of the things that I think we heard about, and I'm curious, you know, standpoint here too, is um, are we using our executives enough in those enterprise level accounts? Um, like, are we have you know executives at our company, um, and are we actually using them to our advantage? So, you know, do we have the CTO who's got a number of accounts that he's assigned to? Do we have the you know the uh, chief revenue officer or the CEO who's assigned to some strategic accounts and actually give them a role to play. Um, I think that's really under underutilized and under leveraged. From what we've seen with a lot of our clients, is that um, you know a lot of times you start hearing that hey we're going to go have an executive business review and it's just like the CSM and and maybe the account manager and it's like oh the you know the CEO didn't want to come and it's like well you're it's you not know, an EBR
2: it's not yeah a, you're it's not, the business you're, review you're not
0: anymore getting the yeah you're not bringing any, anything different to the table they think it's probably just another status meeting even though you're calling it a business review. And so um, I'm curious if you've seen that too, Christy, like how do you leverage the executive team? I mean, you know, your peers I'm sure right now, like how do you make sure and use them to your advantage so that all the client work also all the uh, executive sponsorship doesn't have to fall on your shoulders, you know, being the leader of customer success as well.
1: Yeah. I will say for us right now, I'm very fortunate because our executive leadership team is very dialed into our more strategic customers. Like, our, our president, our CTO, our CEO, they're all, they're very engaged, they're our large customers. I think we're going to start to build out a more pragmatic approach to how we do that. And other organizations that we've built executive sponsorship programs for large accounts, it is difficult to scale. Um, but so at the, the top end of the book, our, our most strategic customers, like you've had that, are, um, you know, we've tried to be as prescriptive as possible. We're saying like, listen, there's got to be impromptu engagement. And we've had again, I'm obviously a very heavy adopter of site, but like we've had playbooks that trigger based on exec sponsor role type um, internally saying that like, this is the exec sponsor on this account and a playbook would fire and that person is notified. They have to reach out to the customer and it's off, it's off the schedule of a business review or regular status meetings. And it's more like, I just want to check in. I want to make sure that you're doing well. It's, it's really, it's just a friendly conversation to see how things are going. Um, so we've used that approach to just kind of keep that conversation going in addition to the milestones and touch points that are built into the journey. Um, the other thing, is like for as we move down further down the book we rely less on just our top level executives and even middle management is providing some level of value right beyond just the csm so for you know as we get into other segments it becomes the the director or the manager or the team lead right like just having another voice in somebody who is a different level showing their interest and their commitment to the partnership which you promised during the sales process um Hmm. actually delivering on that regularly in the partnership goes a long way and i'll tell you like it takes We've got email templates built into our game site playbook. So I don't even have to write the email. Um, I just hit send and I have my Calendly link built right in. So they schedule it for me. I don't even have to have a go back and forth. Um, they schedule a meeting, 15 minutes. It doesn't take a long time. It's not a lot of effort. And as long as you've got a, a way to kind of structure that in a, in a way that's not going to inundate you with too many, um, I think it's a great way to just kind of like programmatically say like, this is how we're going to make sure that our executives are staying plugged into these accounts off scripted off the journey.
2: Well, and that's, that's also how you get, the client executive sponsor to the table correct, is by bringing an executive because a lot of times, let's face it, CSMs are getting, they're getting stuck at their day-to-day point of contact. I mean, they're not going to go above their day-to-day point of contact to, unless they already had a relationship there. So this is a really good, really good way to get the the executive sponsor reengaged. Yeah, opinion. I mean,
1: and it's great to do that also not just when the account's at risk. And I feel like that's where a lot of organizations fail totally. is that your executive is only reaching out when it's too late or there's some some point of escalation. And that's just not a great strategy, right? Like that's not gonna lend any effort. And how many times have I sent an email to a customer because my CSM is like they're gonna churn? And then I'm sending out emails yeah. and I'm sending out emails at all hours and I'm chasing this person. Of course I don't want to talk to me. Like we have zero relationship developed. Exactly. I've not proven my commitment to their partnership. i am not trying to earn their business throughout the length of you know our commitment. And here I am now in the 12th hour saying like, no, 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 I'm here for you. I'm here for you. That's it's a horrible approach, but yet we all do it all the time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. But let's, let's talk about the long end of the tail here. Cause I thought I don't think we've done it justice yet. So let's say we've got customers that are paying $1,200 a year, thousands of them. How would we implement customer health down there?
1: Oh, customer health. Uh, yeah, well, that's what it's like all started. Program, I was like, well, I'm not reaching out to every Like I have 3,000 plus <laughs> exactly. customers. I'm like, I keep me pretty busy. Um, oh, customer health. Yeah, so I mean like I, I took a different approach to customer health at the, the long, the, for our long tail just because basically we've created a health score that's actually separate for every single segment because to just point earlier, right? Like every segment is gonna behave a little bit differently.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so
1: we've created a unique health score for each of those. And I will tell you, there's less metrics and complexity in the, in the long tail right? Like it's, it's a lot more basic um, just because I'm not looking at all the nuances because I'm telling you like a small customer for me and the profile that we're working with, they're using our product in a very basic way um, and they're getting a lot of value out of it. And so for them, it's a, it's a bit more about the competitive landscape and price points because they're, they're conservative, they're financially conservative, right? And so for them, it becomes like a cost thing. Um, so down the, down the long tail for us, I'm paying more attention to the competitive landscape and I'm looking at things like that. And we do do pulse check on competition right like are there other solutions that you're seeing are there things that piquing your interest is there a problem Mm -hmm. that you feel like you're faced with that we're not able to solve and address are you seeing that there's other solutions that can do that are you using other technology to solve a different problem um and so that's that's basically how we're using like i think about the long tail is like i see it more from a competitive landscape and it's more of a price point than it is any real product sophistication or relationship
2: i think a couple of other things that you said earlier sort of come back to everything you do at the long tail is programmatic as opposed to one-to-one, right? Oh, yes. So the idea of voice of customer becomes really powerful. If you can get a high engagement rate from your customers in order to get enough feedback and not just the the NPS score, but the actual comments that they're writing, right? Like what are the, what are the 200 detractors saying when they write a comment in your NPS survey or your NPS questionnaire? Um, and then I think the other thing is if you're back to the customer marketing thing, if you're, if you're doing programmatic education through your marketing channel, right? Your customer marketing channel, then you can also test engagement around those programs, right? Whether it be an online, you know, virtual event or a webinar of some sort. But again, like all that stuff tends to be more focused on the demand generation side of the business, the new logo generation side. But I think all those same tools, if we're looking at the signals can tell us a lot. So. You know, well, buy this—the
1: two- long tail of people are focusing enough on like general, like a, a, like a survey program rather than just triggering NPS twice a year, right? Like, totally. Are we actually be more thoughtful about the feedback loop throughout the entire journey? So for us, like, I have one. It's post sales, and it's a measurement of how did sales do? They set proper expectations. That's going out thirty days after the sales been closed. We do one post onboarding. We do CSAT. I do a mid a renewal one. So even just sending a survey, it goes out six months before the renewal day, and it says is your intention to renew your subscription, yes or no? Guess what? If it's yes, I've got a playbook that triggers off right. on how we can engage to see if we can drive upsell and expansion. And then if it's a no, I've got six months to manage that instead of my typical 120 days out. And if they don't reply at all, sound all of the alarms, right? Like, because definitely there's something bigger and worse going on. Um, but it can't just be reliant on one, that one touch point, right? Like, so figuring yeah. out a way to capture sentiment more throughout the partnership, I think is also really important.
0: Yeah, the um, I think that goes back to the thinking about how to make those feel personal as well. I think people have gotten gun shy because they're like, oh, I've sent so many surveys and like, maybe they won't do it. But I think it comes back to like the expectation setting of like, this is how long the survey is going to take you. This is why we're using it. Um, And actually demonstrating that you're listening. So I think this gets back to your point too, not just, hey, you filled out the survey, but you know, hey, can we also like follow up with that survey and say, hey, we appreciate you saying that you wanted us to do X, Y, and Z. And guess what? That was in the roadmap. We just launched it. And I wanted to send a personal note um, to do that. You know, like I know those still come back to like one-to-one um, interactions, but I think some of those things end up having a really big effect in the long tail. Cause it's like, Hey, if we can prove that we are listening, Hey, can we, if we can prove that we're um, doing you yeah, actually not just uh, getting these signals from them just to get them, like we're actually using them for uh, something of value and setting the right expectations. And I think those things can actually work out well where I think people have gotten gun shy. Cause they're like, Oh, I've sent out a survey and only 10 people respond. And why should I send that again? And it's like, well, maybe you should reset expectations. Maybe you should really start thinking about um, the sophistication of the program and how you're actually listening, not just doing it to do it and check the box. It's, it's
2: not a one-time thing. It's not yeah. a one-time thing. Like you can't just send a survey again. I'll refer back to our buddy, Steve, man. He talks about this all the time. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a campaign. It's a feedback campaign, which includes closing the loop after you get the feedback.
1: And that's the biggest thing that I pe- think people fail at, right? Is collecting the feedback and doing nothing with it.
2: Yep. And I like, you said program earlier. That is the, absolutely the way we think of that, the, the voice of customer or a survey or it's a whole program, right? And, if, and I'd argue if you've got a relationship, like a broad relationship survey going out and you don't have a cross-functional team getting together to look at those results together and game plan what you're gonna do about it, yep. then you don't have a program. And, and you're probably you're probably not treating your customers as well as you could, you know, just for the time they took to, to fill out the survey or to advance what you're doing for them as a business.
1: Yeah, I mean, I will tell you, um, not, not in my current role, but in a previous organization, um, Almost all of the feedback we would get back when it was tied to negative, almost all, not all, uh, was tied to something around our finance and billing processes. And I'll tell you, like, I mean, thankfully, we had stakeholders from every single part of the business. And I was like, look, it's not me. I'm not the problem. We don't invoice them properly. Um, Or we're sending out invoices, like, before we're having conversations, right? It was like a whole just process flow, structured problem that it took us literally I don't know, maybe 45 minutes of a discussion and two weeks to implement a new process to navigate that. And it changed the sentiment for like 30% of the negative feedback we were receiving. Huge. But that's the point though, yeah. right? Like it's not, it's not always going to be indicative of how CS is doing or technical support or services, right? It could be anybody who's touching or impacting that customer throughout. And if you don't have buy-in from every single cross-functional stakeholder to take that seriously and do something about it, that's where you're going to fail. It can't even just be the post-sale organization, right? Like if you have to think about the business as a whole.
0: Uh, I think Jay had an example yeah. one time about how, like, uh, I don't know if you made this up, made this example up or if this was a real one. Um, but he I used don't make it. things up <laughs> <laughs> always. <laughs> so he, used it, he used it a couple of times in some of the, uh, like we were going through to do, do some journey workshops and we get a lot, asked a lot of questions. Like, why do you need a cross-functional, like, why do you need a cross-functional group to come in and do a journey exercise? And it's like, well, let me give you a scenario, you know, sales, sales, a client, they move them you know, we're moving them through the process. And even before we get to implementation, finance sends them a bill and like we're billing them for a product that they haven't even implemented yet that we haven't even talked to them about yet like how bad of experience that like that's why we need a cross-functional group because everyone is going to touch the customer at some point throughout the life cycle so like we need a cross-functional group to really get their hands around like what are every single touch point that's happening with the customer and is it orchestrated or not
2: I definitely did not make that up. I've been in multiple okay. companies where we did that.
1: You don't have to make that up. That literally happened. Everybody in the does that. Like everyone yeah. is just ready, quick to collect. Um,
2: the worst part is when horrible. it's a small customer and like the person that you're going to be impl- like implementing with is also the person who person receives gets the, the, the bill invoice. and then they haven't heard from the implementation manager yet. It's like, oh, you sent me the bill, but I haven't heard. Oh man. I've been on, I've been on the receiving end of that phone call a couple of times. We oh, fixed well. it though. Um okay this feedback for Zora,
1: they can go pay attention to some of this and <laughs> yeah, try to figure exactly. out a way to deploy their playbooks.
2: Exactly. But if you don't invoice, then you can't start RevRec. I mean, there's all these. Oh, other I'll forget
1: it. All the implications. Oh, I get it, I get it. It's a painful journey. But again, going back to the customer sentiment and the feedback, if you're if you're not listening it you're not willing to do anything about it, what, what good is it? Then don't ask.
2: Don't ask. Exactly. We say the same thing. Um we got a lot of customer success people, got a lot of people in general looking for work right now but mm-hmm. what are the the cs folks specifically which is where we play what qualities what are the top qualities that cs leaders are looking for when they hire people for their teams right now or anytime so what's on your list christy oh,
1: strong communication business acumen technical aptitude um, wait a minute
2: whoa whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa, whoa, whoa.
1: Right. whoa. i'm gonna be rattling so i got so many um let's start with communication
2: okay start with communication go ahead
1: so obviously it's gonna be demonstrated through written and verbal, but I'm like anytime I'm even having a conversation with anybody, it's how are they communicating? What is their ability to listen and speak, like their percentage of ratio, right? We're in we're in a role where we've got to listen five times more than we talk.
2: You had a good post on this the other day. By I the did way. have a
1: good post on that. Yeah. All right. God gave you two ears for a reason, one yeah. mouth. Um, you should be listening twice as much as you speak. Um, and I love that. And so it's it's true, right? Like so when I'm having conversations with folks, are they like I, I had an interview once. And I'll tell you, this person spoke for 45 minutes. 45 minutes. I didn't even ask a question. They just dove in and spoke for 45 minutes at me. And I had to cut them off because they ran over. And I just wrapped to the cover. I didn't even know what to do.
2: You were interviewing them or they were interviewing you?
1: I was interviewing them.
2: You know, have you ever heard that whoever talks the most in an interview actually thinks the interview went the best? Oh, well, that
1: person clearly was not advanced (laughs) in the process. So I hope they weren't thinking that, but like, it was really, it was tough. Um, And so, you know, just that ability. So I think about communication is like, what is their communication style? How do they communicate? Um, Brevity. Right. It's probably not my strong suit, but like I look for brevity. Can you be concise in articulating what it is you're trying to say mm-hmm. to try to like avoid being very long winded, um, get to the point. Right. Like I just, I love it when people can actually just answer the question very succinctly. Um, so communication, I think that's what I'm looking for in, in the written sense, right? Like you're, you're putting together a resume, you're, you're filling out a job application on a website. You're probably providing a cover letter. I don't know. Just the basics of like, make sure there's no typos. Cr- be chromatically correct. Like, it's just those are things. If communication is so key to what we do and the success of you know our role, demonstrate that you can do that effectively and well.
2: Yeah, so, I'd argue, I'd argue that, that that for a CSM or an implementation manager or a support rep or list trainer, like any any of the CS family of functions, you gotta have you gotta have that kind of aptitude. Yeah, we
0: had um, a. Uh, we had a uh, person one time come in and they had uh, two to three misspellings on their resume. And, you know, one of the misspellings or one of the things that they put on the resume as like one of their strong suits was attention to detail. And I just <laughs> about lost it like half, like halfway through, I'm like looking at, at the resume I'm reading this. I'm like looking at, and I'm like, there's like two to three areas on here. Like, how can you, how can you say that? Like, that's, you know, so ironic. Um you're not the uh, first
1: person to review a resume where attention to detail was listening listed and there was typos, something grammatically incorrect, the wrong year, date off something.
0: What's a resume? <laughs> yeah. Um I so one of the things that when you ask that question one of the things that I wrote down is like um inquisitive and like consultant and um uh, like you have to find, you know, I think those are skill sets that um especially, you know, building this business over the last 3 years, um I would say that I've had to learn the hard way. You know, I thought I was I thought I was consultative before, and I thought I could ask good questions, and I think I've already been proven, like, I think I've gotten better at that over the last three years, Um, because I think it's hard. I think it's, you know, to your point, Christy, earlier about when we were talking, you know, how how do you help your CSMs, like, set them up for success when they're trying to have strategic conversations, and it's, like, the same thing with, like, consulting. It's not like you can just walk in the door and just start asking the right questions. Like, you have to build the muscle tone and the the thought process behind like what are what types of questions do I want the answers to? How can I get to them without just asking a question that's yes or no? Like how do I get an answer that's actually going to invoke a response? Um, so I think like that and then being inquisitive also I think is something that doesn't come naturally to people as well. I think that's something it's hard to tease out in an interview. Um, but I think when you start asking about hobbies, when you start thinking about like how in depth do they like to go in parts outside of their job, that really interests me because um, I think being inquisitive isn't necessarily something that like everyone loves, but when I think of strong CSMs, it's like, they're inquisitive. Like if they see a red signal, it's not just like, oh, I'm gonna go do the playbook. It's like, no, I'm gonna go dig into the data a little bit. I'm gonna look at like why this happened. I'm gonna kind of figure out maybe a little bit behind it um, before I just go dive into a playbook. And so I think those two things just came up for me as um, quick ones to like, that I would try and look for during like the interview process if I could.
1: That's huge. And like, we kind of categorize that as like intellectual curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. Like your ability to to get to those level of details. Um, I'll tell you, it's probably the thing I struggle most with my team now is that level of depth and, and that intellectual curiosity, right? They'll come to me with a problem, and I'll be able to come back and shoot them 15 questions that they don't have the answer to, right? Because they haven't asked them. They haven't gotten to that level of detail. Um, and so, one, I hope that my listing all those questions out is coaching them and the types of questions they should be asking. But it also proves that, like, that's probably an area I need to be coaching and spending more time with them on because they don't know how to get there. Um, in an interview, I always like, if we get into that talk track of intellectual curiosity, which we typically do, I'll always ask people like, have you ever heard of the five whys? Right. Or just something like that, just to see like, is this a methodology that they're familiar with? Is it like, do they, is that there, are they conditioned to ask questions and dig deeper? Yep. I think that's huge.
2: Big time. Um, the other thing you mentioned, which I latched onto is business acumen. Oh yeah. Um, and I think those two, Things commingle a little bit. Did you And you're communication. just saying
1: yeah. communication. And like, you know, and like, a lot of those things probably fall into like business acumen. Um, consultative
2: skills. Yeah. It's, it's like this idea can I, can I play all the way to the end? Can I truly? Like we talk all about outcomes all the time, right? And the, by the way, outcomes can be positive or negative. I'm not going to get in my <laughs> soapbox <true>. about that. <laughs> but the, can you map backwards from what the business thing is all the way? Back? I mean, you don't have to know the domain to ask the right questions, to your point, be intellectually curious. Is that how you said it?
1: Yeah, intellectual yeah. curiosity, yeah. Yeah,
2: And yeah. and work backward to, okay, well, if you're gonna, you're gonna try to, you know, reduce your inventory on hand, then if I take three steps back, that here's what that looks like. That's business acumen, right? And, and I don't need to know all the answers to be able to ask those questions, to piece all that together. And so, but I think I think it's a um, it's a skill set that is um, really really valuable, but it's not as plentiful as we need it to be in our CSM in the CSM community. That just that mindset, but to me, it's everything that we do.
1: Correct. And correct. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a big gap. It's and it's it's hard to index for. It's one of those things you don't see it until it's like in practice and your team's either doing it or not doing it. Um, And so that's when it becomes a challenge. It's almost a little too late at that point. Um, But it's one of the things that like we try to dig into. It just doesn't always surface itself the best way in an interview.
2: So, So do you have people on your team that come from the industry that you serve now?
1: Um if you don't want to talk
2: about this, it's fine. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, no. There's there's two people on my team that are like SMEs who have actually I wouldn't even call them SMEs, but they have they have been in the telematics space for a very long time. Um so they bring something very different to the table than folks that don't, but they also don't have traditional customer success experience. So they they lack some of the traditional principles of like what we do and how we execute. Um, but they are able to have really well structured conversations with customers and again ask the right questions because they know a little bit more about what to ask and when to ask it. Um, and so I do think that like having that context really does help. It's not everything, but for them I do feel like they are able to navigate conversations in a different way.
2: How, how do you how do you think about the trade-off of hiring if, as you're growing your team? I think what what we see all the time is because vertical SaaS is often very niche. It would be hard to build an entire customer success team of subject matter experts in that area. So we we sort of index toward hire for CSM skill sets and aptitude teach them the domain but you probably do have to have a few of those people on the team that have been in the seat that you're serving to help spread the wealth of some of the knowledge so how how do you you think about that
1: structured a little bit differently right like these are these are folks that were here before i joined the organization right so they weren't they weren't necessarily my hires um i just extended two offers today folks that accepted i'm very excited to be growing the team a bit awesome um but they you know these are these are cs professionals and so the way that i think about bringing SMEs into the organization, I wouldn't put them in a CSM role. I'd put them in a solutions consulting role where they can actually work cross-functionally across the entire org, right? Where they're bringing their level of expertise and supporting all of your customers or at least some segments of your customer rather than their customers getting all the value of that goodness is kind of stretched that across, right? And that's going to help with success plans and all the things that we've talked about. So I wouldn't necessarily put an SME in the exact spot. I'd put them in a, in a role that's kind of across the org.
0: Yep. Yep. Love it what's the let's let's be cheesy for a minute um just because it's almost five and i you know i've been on zoom calls all day uh what's the what's the one interview question that you guys like to go to or ask or like what's just like a classic like if you're in an interview setting like something that you feel like is a a good barometer um of what you what you like and while you're thinking since i just threw you on the spot i'll give you mine because i've been thinking about it for a minute um i just came up with this literally in a moment so uh, this isn't the normal question that I ask, but I'm thinking about it because, um, I think of just our business, but, uh, I think the question that I might ask is, uh, you're starting a business and you are hiring three other people. Like what are the skill sets of those people that you're hiring and why? Um, and the reason why I'd ask that is I'd be curious to see like, who do they surround themselves with if they're building out a team to build a business? And I don't necessarily think the business, like you could argue, right? Like what's the business they're building? Like they're going to need like probably other requirements, but, um, I just think it's really interesting when you start learning about businesses, how you start to surround yourself with people. If you start a business with like people who have skill sets that aren't yours um, typically. And so I'd be curious if that is a question that could kind of glean out some of those things like we were talking about. Like, do you go get somebody and you describe them as communicative or do you describe somebody else as being consultative or something like, uh, I just thought about it in the moment though, cause, um, I think it's been an interesting challenge to build a business and try and find people to surround yourself with. So, uh, that's mine right now. That's what I would go to. You go, Christy. Okay.
1: Um, So mine is definitely probably geared more to CS specifically. I do always like everyone to give me an example of the most notable customer that they ever lost, why they lost them, what they learned along the way, and what they would have done differently had they had the opportunity to redo that. And for me, it's always like, it's a humbling moment. I've had people tell me like, Oh, I've never lost a customer before. Right. And I'm like, oh, right. Like you've never done anything wrong. Right. We're perfect. Um, I, I want somebody who can also like learn and grow and can reflect back and say like, you know what, had I had, had the opportunity, I would have done like these 10 things differently or better. Or like, I would have notified my executive and pulled them in. Or I just like, I would have had a better structure or handle on the success plan. Or like, you know, I just, I love that. Like I love somebody who can actually just like stop, reflect back and actually articulate how they could have done something different or better and, and feel like like humbled by that, but like okay and, and actually put a positive spin on it. So I always like to hear how they answer it, not only with their language, but their tone and like how they how they are reflecting back on that. So that's that's one that I think I always ask.
2: That's a really oh, good yeah. one. Yeah. Especially because it's like this whole self-awareness thing. Yeah. And if they if they can re-, re reflect and and show a little humility and you know yeah, have an answer really like to what that. I would have done differently. Yeah. I like that a lot. My okay so mine's a little bit of a spin on on yours, or maybe a, a broader category uh, that that sits on top of yours. But I don't have one specific question. It's more of a format that I like, which is tell me about a time when you did X, when you did Y. So it could be when you won the big renewal. It could be tell me about the time when you lost the big renewal. Um, tell me about the time when you engaged with a new stakeholder and managed to keep the account after your executive champion left. Um, I I think we have a, a tendency, and I think this happens with newer managers a lot. We ask a lot of hypothetical questions. Tell me how you would feel about this or what is your philosophy on that? It's, th- I don't have much use for that kind of questioning. I want to know about your experience because, and if you're honest with me about it and it's clear that you have aptitude, then you know, your experience doesn't have to have been in customer success. How you hire entry-level people, right? You look at what they did in college. Tell me about the time you worked with a team on a project Tell me about the most complex problem you've ever solved, right? It does not have to be in the software world. So that's mine is very like sticking almost hundred percent to experience.
1: I love it. It's um, almost as if you've gone through my greenhouse line of questioning for my interview process, because that's exactly how we structure everything. And I try to break it down to things that are going to help us understand, you know, product, technical aptitude, consultation, business acumen, right? Like, so each of those questions is framed in a way that I'm going to learn something about their ability to solve or or to demonstrate those skill sets. We do everything based on that.
2: Very cool. I want to see that sometime. I'll send it to you. Hey guys, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. We really appreciate it. Talk to you soon.